Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, darlings. I'm Katie Manning, and I play Joe Grant and Joe Grant Jones in Doctor Who. <laughs> and Iris Wildtime. Hello, lovies. <laughs> and you're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, darlings. Bye-bye. Last time on the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. My name is Tony Witt, and today we are speaking to you from the best Doctor Who convention in the Midwest, Chicago TARDIS. Her eyes were bigger than her shoulder, and her controlling the weapon, but... And they described that Time Lords have a homing instinct for the TARDIS, which I... We've never had reference to that, really. It comes and goes. With the Doctor Who Annual Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the festive task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally festive three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. You are now joining us from California. I am. I'm a little sun boy in Southern California. <laughs> yep, you lucky, you lucky so-and-so, you. <laughs> and finally, we have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello, coming to you from Berwyn, where it is not sunny. Yes, it's not sunny here in Chicago either. In fact, we're doing this in a way that we've really never done on this podcast, the three of us before. Uh, us three specifically, we are doing this via Skype, so... If you hear anything wrong, blame it on Skype, not on me. <laughs> Even though we're kind of doing this on Skype because I happen to be sick, don't worry. It's not Corona. I'm not even drinking Corona right now, so nothing to worry about. So, if you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine that, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you've shrunk them down to fit into your mini-scope to free up some storage space. <laughs> 
Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Deep Breath, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, and our new patron, Stephen Pickering. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. And Deep Breath, that's a new Patreon. Yeah, we yeah, deep breath. That's a new <laughs> smart ass you. I, I see I see California has rubbed off on you already. Deep breath uh, is a, a cam performer. It's it's a good time probably to make money doing cam work right now. Uh, well, that's why I have my uh that's why I have my video turned off. Yeah, no one wants to see me right now. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr in fact we expect you to i apologize for not getting the forum up for this particular episode in time for this recording but we've just come back from hiatus and i've been kind of like you know enjoying the time off and i completely forgot to do it we continue now with our discussion of the second story of season 10 carnival of monsters without further ado here are some fast facts Doctor Who and the Carnival of Monsters, adapted by Terrence Six from the script by Robert Holmes, and aired from 12773 to 21773, published by Target Books in January 1977. As of this recording in March of 2020, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 125 pages. Although this story follows the three Doctors, it was actually filmed well before that story, at the end of the previous session's recording block, to give them more flexibility mainly due to Patrick Troughton's uncertain schedule, because he actually had a lot of work going on after Doctor Who, unlike other actors. Uh, Robert Holmes, who had previously written The Crotons, The Space Pirates, and more impressively, Terror of the Autons, was asked to do a script called Labyrinth, which would bear the budget considerations of Doctor Who in mind. Hence, we have two separate locations with two separate casts, with all the recording for one location done in one recording block and all the rest done in the other, which is why, of course, the people from the ship never interact with the people on Interminer. Due to the low budget, we also get an example of Holmes' trademark humor in one of the names. Drashig, which is the big monster in this story, is an anagram of dishrag. (laughs) This implies that Holmes thought they'd be made out of dishrags given the budget. His his use of the Carney language, Polari, is also interesting, as by the time the story was transmitted, Carneys were no longer using it, but the gay community in London was. So essentially, Vorg is trying to chat the doctor up using gay London language, which is pretty interesting to just about no one but me. All right, Barry Lips directed this one, and thus made some people happy who had previously auditioned for lead parts and failed. Watching the story gives us a good idea of the companions that could have been. For instance, the actresses playing Sherna and Claire, Cheryl Hall and Jenny McCracken, respectively, had both been on the six-person shortlist for the part of Joe Grant. Hmm. And he told them that he would give them a part in some future production, which indeed he did do. The other bit of casting he did, however, has a direct impact on us as readers of the novelizations. One of the actors who auditioned for the part of Mike Yates but couldn't commit to a series at that time, was asked by Letts to play Lieutenant Andrews. That actor is, of course, Ian Martyr. Hmm. Yep, we know that name. Yep. 
Because of the job he did in that part, Martyr was the first person Let's thought of the following year after this story to play incoming companion Harry Sullivan to incoming Dr. Tom Baker. That would eventually lead to Martyr writing nine Target novelizations and one original novel featuring Harry, which we will also be reading. We've still got five books of his to read, by the way, so gird your loins. <laughs> A few bits of trivia. Katie Manning did the sounds for the chickens in episode one. <laughs> okay. The Cyberman only they appeared. They couldn't afford chickens? Apparently not. I mean, they could have just done stock sounds for that, but she decided to do the chicken noises. Is it, no, I haven't actually seen the episode. So is it like an arrested development when everyone has a really weird idea of what a chicken sounds and looks like? <laughs> not is it, is it quite. Or does she yeah. do a pretty realistic job? Uh, it's pretty realistic. In fact, until I read that bit of trivia, I had no idea that that was the case. The Cyberman only appeared so briefly in the story because Terrence Dix hated them. And yes, we will talk about that when we get to the novelization of the 20th anniversary story, which he both wrote and novelized. And uh, Kalik, 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 I believe, is played by Michael Wisher, the actor who would soon play Davros, the creator of the Daleks. Interesting. Yes, indeed. One other noteworthy thing about this story, if you listen to our opening music for this podcast, mixed by the awesome Aaron S., you may hear a weird twanging going on under the soundtrack, and the reason we chose it is because it's from a theme unique to the Pertwee era. Barry Letts wanted to commission a brand new version of the opening music, and so he asked Patty Kingsland, who would later score several Peter Davison stories, to record a new theme at the Radiophonic Workshop using a synthesizer they called the Delaware because the workshop was located uh, in Delaware Road. While Letts liked it, the Delaware theme, as it's now called, was not a hit with the BBC higher-ups who forced him to use the original. If you lived in Australia at the time, though, you heard that theme on an early edit of episode two sent out by mistake. It was also included on the home video and DVD releases. The only other time apart from these releases that would ever be heard on broadcast TV was on episode five of the next story, Frontier in Space, because for some reason it got an early edit as well. Now, my former boss and friend of the podcast, Arnold T. Bloomberg, wrote a review for IGN claiming that this is the worst story of the Pertwee era. I personally think it's right up there with Inferno among the best. We might actually agree about the book, though. So um, who's up for doing a reading of the back cover? I have a question first. Okay. <laughs> um, so apparently I missed something very key. You said that there were scheduling issues with Patrick Troughton. Is he in this episode? No. In The Three Doctors. Okay, that's what I okay. Sorry, yeah. so my thinking about it the whole time you've been talking and frantically Googling this for not. Okay, I thought I thought maybe he was one of the heavily made up characters. Oh, no, 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 no. No, this was recorded in the previous recording block before they did Three Doctors. Okay, so he was not returning in glory and in costume. No, yet. no, no. No, they did that specifically so that they could schedule around him. And so Barry Letts could direct this episode because he wanted to direct at least one episode per uh, season. All right, so back cover. Who's doing it? I nominate Dalton from the floor. <laughs> okay, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna offer. So uh, I'm glad okay. we agree. Um, the Doctor and Joe land on a cargo ship crossing the Indian Ocean in the year 1926, or so they think. Far away on a planet called Inter Minor, a traveling showman is setting up his live peep show, watched by an eager audience of space officials. 
On board ship, a giant hand suddenly appears, it grasps the TARDIS, and withdraws. Without warning, a prehistoric monster rises from the sea to attack. What is happening? Where are they? Only the Doctor realizes, with horror, that they might be trapped. Da-da-da! Yes. Very good. Very good. Oh, speaking of which, another another mooted title for the story is Peep Show, which is why it's on the back cover and why it's also name-checked in the dialogue of the story. All right. So let's get into this one. First impressions. What did you all think when you first uh, got the book and got the uh, that lovely cover, by the way? I think it's one of the best covers from the Pertwee era. Yeah, I do. I do really like the cover. I like the monster um, attacking the ship. It's it's very expressive. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I in ways I wanted there to be more. I wanted there to be more exploration to some of the other areas in the micro uh, or what was it called? The miniscope. Micros- miniscope. I want to keep wanting to say microscope. Um, <laughs> and and in some ways, I feel like the whole framing device of the of interminer is just it, it's pointless really yes huh interesting it to me in any of the talk of the functionaries and the overlords or um the the higher-ups it just it seems kind of just tacked on it doesn't need to be there they don't really explore it very much it's more just kind of there to say these guys are big and mean and enforce the law but the the mm. peep show could have been happening really anywhere ah i see well i've i've got i've got a theory on why that's there in fact but i'll leave it for later okay okay uh allison your first impressions uh, my first impression was there surely had to be another more family friendly um type of peep show that i was previously familiar with uh, <laughs> I I giggled every time I read it. Every single time, even if I was in public on public transportation, I still giggled aloud at Pete Show. Uh, in this context, uh, I thought it was a a fun, uh, breezy, light story of the type that Terrence Dix does very well. Um, a lot of his signature humor. And once again, I don't know how much of that uh, was added and how much was in the original script. And I actually really liked that the entire. Not the entire story, but most of the story was set in a cargo hold um, and like the framing device of it. Yeah. In fact, funny thing about that ship, that ship was going out of service. And so the, uh, I believe it was the Navy said that they could use it. Now, remember that story I told you about uh, John Pertwee taking a compass from a ship and having to return it. And I, th- I thought it was during Sea Devils because... I remembered reading that in a reference book, and it turns out that, no, it was during this one. But the story is a little more complicated because apparently there was a compass that he could have taken, but the, and that's the one he took, but there was another compass that actually got stolen by somebody else, and so he ended up having to turn his in as well. So some weirdness there. And as for the, the word peep show, I, I'd have to do some research on this, but I have, I have a funny feeling about this. You're about to hear your host pull something out of his ass for the same reason that a politician talks about a pandemic and says there's nothing to worry about because he knows nothing. I have a feeling that the reason why we respond differently to the word peep show than the British do 
is because that technology may have only been used here specifically by the end of the, you know, 50s, 60s, whatever, for adult peep shows. Whereas in the British Isles, maybe, just maybe, they never really had that whole thing going. So it still didn't have that kind of, um, you know, reverse polarization. I don't know what you would call that. Um, Prurient sound to it. What is the technology? Well, I'm thinking specifically about um, those wind-up film projectors that they had by the turn of the century. And by the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and I think even now, there's something like it except they moved to video. You can go to adult bookstores and put in your monies and you get a, a clip, a porn clip. And those were traditionally thought of as peep shows. I think another usage that we have in this country for peep show is when you go to, say, an adult club and there's someone separated from you by glass and you watch them perform. Don't ask me how I know all this stuff. Because he knows nothing. Well, but those are the only types of it I've heard before is video or glass separation. So I don't know if there was something like a stereoscope or something. No. I, well, I think stereoscopes would have been used for it too, but earlier on. I, but that's what I mean about the usage being so much more prurient here in the States as opposed to the UK. But um, listeners, please, I, I know that you call me out on every error I make. So by <laughs> all means. about peep shows you've attended that would be appropriate for young adult literature and television? <laughs> well, like anyone's listening from that age group. But yeah, uh, if they are, they're getting a hell of an education out of this. <laughs> um, but I think that's the, that's the thing. I think that's why peep show that may have even been why they changed the title though. I really don't know. So I'm hoping that someone, anyone will comment and let us know and let us know that they're actually listening to our first episode back after this long break, which we all really needed. Yes. Oh my God. I was actually relieved to come back to Dr. Who books. So that's a good thing. <laughs> well, I thought it was very topical that um, the story in the, in, um, goodness, don't ask me to remember any names in this. Uh, we usually don't. Races. No, I'm having trouble regulars. with I know I'm terrible. Yeah. If Tony likes to remind us, I'm the worst. No, do not. Okay, we keep wanting to say they're in Asia Minor. It's, what is it? Inter Minor. Inter Minor. It was actually very timely that they they are still very jumpy and on edge from a plague epidemic they had and it was oh, yes. a long way in the past here but the paranoid behavior um it has been five years since last friday i believe when the flip switched and suddenly every human communication became about coronavirus whereas before it was something you think about okay so this is something to keep an eye on and then suddenly friday it was the beginning of national toilet paper and rubbing alcohol stock up weekend and with all the news and suddenly things became very real and present in the u.s in a way that they maybe hadn't been you know even the day before so it 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 was actually pretty interesting to have a light novel um with that background oh yeah yeah absolutely especially since the next two stories are not going to be light by any means just letting you know (laughs) it's nice to have that background but it this is one of the more fun fast moving ones that we've read recently yeah I would agree with that. And definitely the TV episode is meant to be 
light and airy for exactly the same reasons. They knew what stories were coming up on in the pipeline. They were like, um, <laughs> we better give the audience something to um, enjoy before we depress the hell out of them, as you'll see. Mm. But uh, yeah, Thanks, <laughs> I was looking yeah. forward to the next ones. But well, well, you should anyway because the next one is called uh, Malcolm Hulk script. All right, and so it'll be it'll be well done, but oh, it's yeah. going to be heavy. It'll be it a very be beautiful heavy. elegy. Yes, yes, <laughs> kinda, kinda, a little bit. Let's let's unpack what Dalton said first because you said that you didn't find that the interminer pieces with the functionaries and the authorities, officials. Thank you. Um, overlords, but yeah, officials. Officials, yeah. Uh, yeah, overlords, because we have had the mutants already. Well, I think there's actually a good reason why it's there. Okay. And I didn't catch this double story going on in the original story nearly so much until I read it this time. And then I realized what Robert Holmes was trying to do. Because one of the themes of this book appears to be it's really bad to enslave people that you think are lesser than you for your own entertainment or for your own production. And say, oh, they're really happier that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of that comes from the one line that one of them has. It's about if, if, if you give them a hygiene chamber, then they store fossil fuels in it. Yes. I, did you catch that, Alice? Oh, yeah. The, uh, the historical reference? Well, maybe not. I just thought that it was pointing out what you said, that, that the, uh, the, the Asia Minor planet, <laughs> that they're living in a very similar hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. It's also a direct reference to, um, I believe it's industrialists in the 19th century, talking about the working class and saying if you, if you gave them an outhouse, they'd store their coal in it. It turns out that's close. The line is, if the workers had baths, they'd use them to keep the coal. Yeah, I actually looked up the quote, oh. and I wish I had it. And it's like, oh, this is about class issues. This whole I story. Is that specific a reference, so. Yeah. I, guess, I guess my whole thing with it is, though, they only talk about it, like, one time. Yes, they, I was not, really not, surprised that there was no follow-through or payoff at the end of the story. That's the issue. Like, when they start talking about the hierarchy of the officials and the functionaries, they they very clearly make it that this is really unfair and they're held back, blah, blah, blah. And you think that it's going to come back to it or it's going to have some larger um, effect on the story. But no, it's just like, this is the way it is. And then they don't ever really come back to it. Well, I'm not so sure about that either, because we're told that President Zarb, and is that the most SF name ever or what? President Zarb is putting in all of these changes, and his brother Kallik doesn't like them, and is trying to foment revolution amongst the other uh, officials, because he doesn't like these very liberal changes of possibly allowing the functionaries more time off and more entertainment and all of that. But <clears throat> since Vorg and Sherna are essentially stranded there at the very end of the story, uh -huh. and Vorg seems very much the entertainer, and so does Sherna, it does seem like there's going to be some little bit of change. It's going to be incremental. It's not going to be the same as everybody being released from the um, miniscope, that sort of liberation, but at least it's, you know maybe a form of progress yeah it's the implication was they were going to scam themselves into ruling the planet oh probably 
And that would be that would be fine. Kingdom of Carnies. Yeah. And that would be fine too, especially if they're all speaking Polari. I mean, yeah, gay rights and interminer or Asia Minor, or whatever we're calling it these days. <laughs> That's why I think the framing story is there. That and, of course, Robert Holmes being told, hey, you need two locations. There needs to be as much story in one as there is in the other. And if we had been just on the ship the whole time, it wouldn't have carried four episodes. No, not at yeah. all. Whereas the rest of it seems to be carrying it pretty well. What else stood out to you? about the story i'm i'm curious to see the way on screen how the the size difference the 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 practical or or optical effects with the hand yeah. <laughs> and all of that um since we we've had you know we had the planet of giants before mm-hmm. um which i still haven't seen any of that either but seeing seeing it come up again where size is really um at play right Exactly. Yeah, I, I thought that it's challenging to keep up a consistent sense of relative scale in a story like this, and I did not think it was successful. No, and it's not successful on screen either, because as has been pointed out by many people, when Vorg takes the TARDIS out earlier on, it's really like the size of a toy. It fits between two fingers and his thumb. Uh, when the Doctor comes out, He's a bit bigger than that. Uh, And, of course, there's just not enough size in that whole miniscope for there to be that many creatures in it, even if we only think, okay, there's only the Ogron, there's only the Cybermen, uh, Cyberman, rather. There's only... But we're told that there's so many others, and it's like, okay, well, it's one of those situations where the science just doesn't add up and mm-hmm. kind of just have to go along for the ride because in those scenes where the doctor and Joe are walking around in the machinery, that, that's kind of fun. Those oh, sequences yes. are kind of yeah. fun. But this, the hand, when it comes in, should be you know not interpretable as a hand. It should be the size of the sky, not something they could even recognize because it couldn't even see the width of it if, if exactly. they have these entire vast environments inside of the scope. Exactly. And when Vorg tries to uh, spear them <laughs> at one point in the story, the spear is easily as, lar- as, is as large as his hand. So, yeah, they're, they're really kind of doing what they can with the technology of the time. So it's all color separation overlay effects. Okay. It, it's all green screen. It doesn't look all that convincing, obviously, because we're talking about a low-budget show, early 70s. And that's part of the charm, but it's also its curse. It's much more interesting on the page, but as you pointed out, those size discrepancies are a little odd even on the page because they're so much easier to notice. Right. So, yeah, it's. but that being said, it's really quite a, a fun-looking story, and hopefully that came across on the page as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was still very fun, and yeah, it, did, it didn't seem very heavy. It, it seemed like even though they were in a predicament that they needed to figure out. It didn't necessarily feel like they were in a situation that they were in too much peril. Yeah. It, it always felt like it was something that, you know, the doctor would figure out and be able to get them out of. He mm-hmm. just needed to, he just needed time. Right. 
Exactly. It's like when Joe is hiding from the people on the ship and she knows it's going to reset every few minutes and she gets bored of hiding one place. So she tries right. to go somewhere else. Just to, <laughs> so it's a, bit, a little more entertaining and they don't remember that they really are afraid of her, or angry with her mm-hmm. because that was from the last go round. So like, oh, it's like hide and seek. Oh, there she is. Get her, get her. <laughs> yeah. Those scenes with Joe, uh, they're great on screen, but they're even better in the book. Except for Vix at one point says that she comes near hysterical tears as she's talking to them. And if you watch the scene, it's like, no, that's that's not hysteria. That's not tears. If anything, that's Joe Grant saying, listen to me, you fuckers. I'm trying to tell you what's going on. More frustration. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And Katie Manning plays it beautifully. So it's it's a little disappointing to see Terrence Dick still doing that. But uh, again, yeah, when everything else is going so right, that's that we can forgive that for sure. Yeah. Hmm. What else? I like, I like the idea of the Drashigs just um, being omnivores, just eating everything, including the metal of the device itself to just their, they just eat, 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 eat anything (laughs) in the world. So that, that was maybe like the one part that felt like, Oh man, they're, these things are pretty nasty and they will just keep coming at you no matter what. Mm hmm. Um, I, I felt it kicked me out a little of the story, out of the story a little though. That it sort of poses the question of why don't they just eat their way out of their confinement and through the machine before now? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Pedantic, so. <laughs> yeah, they should be able to smell what's outside the um, the. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry, they should be able to smell what's outside the miniscope. I would think. Yeah, but but then we wouldn't have some of the peril in the story, would we? Yeah. I do think it's kind of crazy, though, that the first thing that Andrews thinks of when he sees these creatures is, we have dynamite in the hold, let's blow them up. It's like you're on a sailing ship. Right. Uh... <laughs> do you really want to use dynamite in the hold of a sailing ship? But I... I wasn't sure what direction things were headed in with Andrews' jovial, casual racism. Yeah. And mm. that turned out to be quite interesting, I thought. Uh, how so? Well, it, it's a prelude to him being punched out by the doctor um so (laughs) well it's he's clearly supposed to be obnoxious yeah but i i thought it was interesting that it's a part of his uh, illustrating his tiresomeness Hmm. that in every cycle he says something casually racist about the cook or oh i've been to uh i've been to shanghai let me tell you i know all about johnny chinaman and instead of being something that's not actually a big deal it's something that he is in the story effectively punished for That's Which I thought was interesting. And that's strange, given the fact that Ian Martyr playing it on screen is not obnoxious at all. In fact, it does come off as casual racism. And in fact, we get some of that with uh, Major Daly as well. Um, not Mayor Daly, but Major Daly. I um, did keep reading it as Mayor Daly, though. Did even you though too? It's a little differently. <laughs> yeah, I had the same problem. But uh, that, that's Chicago for you, folks. <laughs> Well, but, and I assure you, Richard J. Daly would have had no problem with any of those casual one-off racist remarks either. No, no, not at all, not at all. Oh, don't get us, don't get us sued, though, Allison, because we want to keep this show on the air. Okay, um, so uh, no, 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 no. I, <laughs> okay, brief sidelight here. Uh, for the last mayoral election, I went to a mayoral forum when Bill Daly, his son, was still in the race, and there were half a dozen other candidates. And it was held in a church wherein the host was talking about how when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. came to town, Richard J. Daly 
asked that no churches host him. And this church had been one of the ones that had hosted him. Oh, and yeah. you could see on the, the, the face of the um, event officiant when he remembered that Bill Daly was sitting right behind him. <laughs> and he turned around and said, somebody, oh, sorry, man, or something like that. <laughs> Bill Daly kind of made a gesture like, no, no, I understand. <laughs> I know. He was a racist fuck. We I all hated I don't, him. <laughs> I don't think the, day, the next generation of Daly's are going to be suing us over stating the obvious is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, probably not. This is probably stating the obvious too, but given that the uh, ship was taken from the 1920s, we are talking about an era in which white supremacist ideas were not only as freely spoken of as they are these days, but they were actually promulgated by some of the intellectuals of the time. So if you have higher-ups in government and in social circles saying, yeah, yeah, the lesser races do have less intelligence and they're somehow lesser than we are. It's going to be easy for somebody in a position of, say, the working man, like Lieutenant Lieutenant Andrews, to do the same thing. Uh, he keeps um, talking about how the cook is a very good cook. and I don't remember the term he used, but I had to look it up to find that it was a pan-South Asian slur because I thought maybe this is an ethnic group and... I don't. I haven't heard it before. Yes. But what was that term? From his perspective, I think it's Madrasi. Madrasi. Yeah. Think. I apologize if I'm not supposed to say that. I thought maybe it was, like I said, a people group, but apparently it's sort of a um, a pan-Indian subcontinent uh, term, used term that's uh, considered a disrespectful or, or slur term. But Madrasi, from his perspective, no. he is complimenting the cook, saying, "Oh, he's a great cook." That. You know, that so-and-so, which is much like the paternalistic attitude that, goodness, I'm blanking on our names again, Zorg and Sherna, sorry, yeah. have towards the creatures. We don't want them killed. I mean, yes, we've encaptured them and they eternally perform for our amusement, but we don't mistreat them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, that's where so that double thought it, 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 The dialogue worked for Andrews, but it's all... It's all condescending language toward East Asians and South Asians. And if I were East or South Asian, I might find it a little more tiresome. Oh, I'm sure. Even, and, though, even though he is effectively punished for it and shown to be a hypocrite for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, that's, that's probably why, even though the story is very light and airy, any sort of social commentary that it makes is going to be really, really subtle. So you don't have someone calling out Andrews on, you know, saying things like that, because of course no one would. You don't even have the doctor calling him out because he's never around when he says it, but he probably would say something. You don't have Dix as your narrator necessarily pointing out the racism of those statements at all either. So maybe it's one part Dick's not being interested in bringing up those issues, but another part, the fact that they're not really focused on in the original script, and therefore they bubble up through the script, and so, and so you realize after the fact, hey, this has all been about colonialism and slavery and how uh, empires fall, because there is a lot of that going on in the story, too. Yeah, it's not so overt. It's really, it's really subtle, which isn't necessarily bad. But. No, not at all. In fact, if you are reading any of the forums on um, Gallifrey Base these days, people are very much into subtle political messages, and they can't stand the fact that the most recent series has been beating them over the head with it. And it's like, okay, let's bring that up again when we get to the last story of this season. <laughs> I'm flipping because... through my screenshots here, but there's some some text relevant to that in the story. Okay, the three here we go. The three Minorans recoiled in alarm. 
Uh, no, said Playtrek. Our purpose is to amuse, uh, confirmed Vorg. Nothing serious, nothing political. Our purpose is to amuse. Simply to amuse. Nothing serious, nothing political. Alec <laughs> Brown. Amusement is prohibited. It is purpose purposeless. All right, so I, I read a little extra there, but... Um, nothing political. He said there's nothing political about the fact that he has an involuntary menagerie of creatures <laughs> fighting for his amusement yeah. and for his profit. And he sees nothing political in that. No, of course not, because he doesn't see keeping them in the miniscope as any different than, say, the officials having the functionaries working for them. And when one just happens to decide to speak out against it, they shoot him down. Stories mm. are almost always political. I, I, I'm probably overstating, but I'll go ahead and say stories are always political. It's just we often use the term political as a synonym for partisan. Yes. Um, stories are not always partisan, but they're always political and they have to do with policy and how life is lived and how different people interact and may not be about that but they always have some kind of even if it's default political content they always have some kind of political content oh god yeah yeah. oh yeah and at the risk of pissing off one of our listeners and getting yet another negative review uh yeah another negative review on itunes and i think it's the same person again but i can't do a goddamn thing about it um, I do notice that the people who scream most about the lack of subtlety are generally doing so when they're being presented with a story idea or a social idea that doesn't jibe with their own personal values. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think as long as you're agreeing with it, it's fine. Yeah. But if you're not agreeing with it, oh, suddenly it's just in your face. Ooh. And there's nothing in your face about this particular story, because I'd like to think we all at this point think that colonialism is wrong, that slavery is wrong, that using others for your own purposes is wrong. But I don't know. I'm old fashioned in that way. (laughs) I thought that this story was actually a nice way, a, a nice light story to introduce that idea especially to younger viewers and readers but also in the con there's no context of cruelty here and we've seen so many stories in these adaptations about colonialism and slavery that are very very overt and very dark and have to do with mm-hmm. suffering yeah, and oh, this yeah. Is more about, oh we're putting on a fun adventure show it's, it's not nearly as dark as for example like the mojo stories and x-men the early late 70s or early 80s i guess where you know there's an all-out life or death combat arena it's not nearly as dark like i said uh you know andrew's remarks are not seen as malicious they're just dehumanizing and demeaning and belittling but he wouldn't consider himself at all hateful and i think that's actually a very nice a nice way to do a story for young people and introduce them to that idea there doesn't have to be a presence of violence and maliciousness and uh, sort of dark, violent intent in order for the situation to be profoundly dehumanizing. Yeah, agree. Yeah, agree. And this is, of course, airing at a time when the BBC is still running its long-running minstrel show. <laughs> so mm. the way the British viewed racism at this time was slightly different from the way we view it. But I'm guessing people working on Doctor Who were not the same people producing the other show also. No, goodness, no, no. I mean, as we have said many times on on this uh, podcast, both Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks were about as woke as you could get in the early 70s. And I mean that in a good way. Same thing with uh, Robert Holmes, for that matter, and same thing with uh, Malcolm Hulk. 
So, yeah, they would not have had anything to do with any of that. Sexism, on the other hand, is a slightly different story, but that, yeah. What else? What else? Um, what did you enjoy most about the story? Because there's a lot, as you said, Allison, there's a lot of humor. Most of it comes from the original script because this is Robert Holmes finally turning into the Robert Holmes that we, you know, venerate when we talk about him later in the Tom Baker era. Um, what bits of humor did you appreciate most? What scenes did you appreciate most? What bits of dialogue did you appreciate most? I liked Ward and Sherna a lot and the way they were described as, let's see here, uh, with terms such as seedy splendor. <laughs> yes. There, there's very little description of them physically, but the description of their clothes as being very carefully maintained and obviously very worn. Mm-hmm. So I thought a, a nice, a nice through line they had for them. Oh, yeah. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting, some of the parallels, because Robert Holmes is very fond of double acts in his story, especially starting with this one, where you have secondary characters that are paired off. And Vorg and Sherna are very much kind of a uh, a mirror version of the Doctor and Joe, if you think about it. Totally missed that. Yeah. It's, It's a little more obvious on screen because Vorg's outfit really kind of gives the Sixth Doctor's outfit a run for its money. It's just incredibly tasteless. And given that Sherna is played by the actress who could have been Joe Grant, that that parallel is definitely there to some degree. (laughs) (laughs) I like this. Top of the bill, he said. She cried dramatically, looking around at the hot, dusty spaceport. Treated like a star, he says. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is very much the same sort of reaction Joe has to, oh, Metabilis 3, is it? Yeah. Air like wine, is it? Up on that. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely there because their reactions to coming out, you know, on a new planet are very much the same. It's like, oh, great. This again. But while, okay, so I did not see that parallel. Now I feel very thick skull, but Vorg, whereas Vorg uh, bowed uh, somewhat obsequiously to the local officials, we have the doctor a few pages before uh, greeting the chickens saying, uh, we come as friends. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, the chickens. <laughs> and I love that that ongoing joke that the doctor is absolutely certain that they are on Metabilis 3 despite everything despite every bit of evidence even when he gets out of the miniscope he thinks they may still be on metabilis 3 it's a minor not metabilis 3 the famous blue planet of the actian galaxy oh no i see when he's in some sort of mortal peril but he's kind of irritated as he says you know now i won't win the fight with joe yes exactly it's like well maybe maybe i don't have to mention it tour after all it's by the way metabilis three that is a chekhov's gun because we're going to hear it mentioned at least one more time again and then when we finally do see it uh, it's going to be something of a major plot point and and will be again so it's uh they're they're very sneaky about putting that in so early in the season because we are going to hear it it's all you can almost think of it as a type of mini arc in this particular season, and the next one. But yeah, they're not on Metabilis 3, which is just hilarious. <laughs> I I like the, the part towards the end, once the Doctor does uh, come to size, once he's out of the machine, and he kind of uh, just bosses his way around with the officials. Yes. Um, and kind of the thought of that he has that um, with kind of authoritarian 
uh, races and people that the the more kind of blustery authority that you show that they they appreciate that as opposed to Vorg who they they kind of push around because he shows uh, weakness. The doctor instead is like, well, I'm just gonna act like I know everything and am in charge, and they'll agree with it and they'll respect me for it. Yes, and what I love about reading the novelization of this is that on screen, it's Pertwee being Pertwee, being just completely confident and blustering and all of that. Um, and here we get his inner thought process and realize, oh, he doesn't know what's going on and he's just trying to bluster his way out of it because he's just as clueless as anybody else is. Well, I love that Borg identifies him as a fellow circus performer. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, yes. a showman, yes. A showman. Yes, just look because at the way he's dressed. Yes, of course he's one of us. Oh, yeah, doctor, professor, titles always go over well with the uh, punters, yes. don't, don't they? <laughs> it's absolutely funny. The, and also, it ties into the previous story, because if the Doctor is just finishing up his um, exile on Earth from the Time Lords, then he suddenly can pull that authority in a way that he couldn't pull it before, because before, he couldn't get off Earth, and if he said, well, I'm going to sick the Time Lords on you, there isn't much you know, bite behind that, but given what he tells Joe, that he himself made a nuisance of himself until they actually stepped in and banned these things. And I can just see the Hartnell Doctor doing exactly that. Yeah. Or whoever the first Doctor is, since we <laughs> suddenly don't know anymore. Everything that you think you know is a lie. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's the lines I was looking for. One of us? He's a Terran, isn't he? The Brotherhood of Showmen is intergalactic, said Vorgoloftily. He's got to be in the carnival business, Sherna. Look at his manner. Look at his clothes. I recognize the type, I tell you. I've worked many a Terran fairground. Sherna looked yes. wistfully, wistfully at the doctor. You may be right. He's certainly got style. And yet, there's an earlier mention where Vork says he's never been to Earth or something along those lines. That this collection was given to him by somebody else that he won it. I think it was the shell game that he's playing at the very end. In fact. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's one of the weird little inconsistencies in the original script that Dix decides to keep in the novelization, which is fine, perfectly fine, unless... There are uh, listeners out there thinking that we're picking apart every single little thing. We are not. We're enjoying this as much as you are. Probably more so. <laughs> well, Tony is, but Dalton and I are not guilty. Yeah. Huh? No. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Ever so fucking much. Yes. God damn it all. Uh, so when we think of the um, lack of personal pronouns used by the officials to such delightful passive-aggressive ends. Yes. It One almost... wonders why the tribunal is submitting to questioning by the alien instead of questioning it. Surely that's the wrong way around. <laughs> and then, you know, Orm shook his head. One is forced to admire the creature's audacity till towards the end of that page we have one's authority comes direct from Prince Zarb. Uh, I'm sorry, from President Zarb. So interesting yeah. that, that it's, it's not only gender neutral, but it also never refers to me or I and thus never actually claims responsibility, which I thought was kind of brilliant. Yeah, 
Exactly. And that's something else that this book is commenting on, the idea that any group of people who puts another group of people into submission are essentially going to lose their individuality to some degree, or even some degree of their humanity. Because these guys, when they appear on, on screen, they're literally gray. There is, <laughs> there's no color about them at all. They are literally gray. They have these gray skull caps, one of which quite entertainingly starts slipping off in the very last scene. <laughs> it's very funny to watch. Yes, I guess we are nitpicking things. So there. But um, yeah, they, they just don't have any real individuality. It's surprising they even have names, to be honest. But you, again, you get that weird double act going because you've got Kallik and his little acolyte whose name I keep forgetting. It's like Orem. 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 Yeah. That's it. Orem. Kallik's the thin one. Orem is the heavy one. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. And Orem may seem harmless at times, but he's just as guilty as Kallik is of one uh, keeping the functionaries in a lower caste, for instance, and two, going along with all these machinations to essentially overthrow the government. Yeah, very well, good banality of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and he he is he's the third in the group of three and it seems to that he always defaults to what Colic wants to do so he automatically is just throwing off any kind of fairness that that would be involved he's the swing vote but he's not really the swing vote because he's no. always gonna he's always gonna go with what Colic says yeah he's like those bots that always seem to tweet seconds after trump tweets yeah nothing serious nothing political yeah <laughs> Not on this show. <laughs> yeah, indeed. There are several little changes throughout the book that I think are just great. One, they refer to the Ice Warriors, which I'm sure kind of raised Allison's hackles for a few seconds. But <laughs> no, I was surprised. I did not. Uh, I did not growl at the screen or anything. Okay, good. They they don't appear on screen at all. Just so you know, the only the only things we see are. An Ogron and 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 a Cyberman. In fact, this is the only time ever that the Cybermen appear during the Pertwee era. Because one, Terran Sticks hated them so much, and two, they were overexposed during the Trouton era, uh, which is where most of their stories come from. But I, I was the Ice Warriors is just kind of a throwaway, inexpensive fan service. Yeah, it is, but that also means that they had to pull a costume out of storage and dress somebody in it, and then point a camera at him so yeah <laughs> i was just gonna say it makes me curious about what um what their environments were like and what they were supposed to be uh repeating over and over again oh god yeah i know right i wonder that about the cybermen and the uh the cyberman and the uh Ogrons as well yeah like what what are all these other creatures doing in their environs yeah. Yeah, because we're we're explicitly told that the the humans or the Terrans are basically not allowed to fight until they seriously harm one another. Here we have something like um, they can be made to fight in the most amusingly aggressive manner, but if you let it go on too long, they'll damage one another. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Damage oh, here it one is. another. Uh, yes, amusingly aggressive manner. Or oh, I'm proud of myself to have recalled it <laughs> word for word. But it's indicated they wouldn't be allowed to actually seriously injure one another. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what else the cre- other creatures would do. Serious injury is their whole branch. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would, it would be interesting to see what the other shows are. Yeah, it really would. And no one's ever really explored that. 
<laughs> but it's just interesting that they're even mentioned and that we do get that mention of the fact that the Ogrons were used as functionaries by some race called, I think, yes, the Daleks. It's like, okay, name-checking Daleks, very nice. Um, maybe another Chekhov's gun there, though? Hmm? Perhaps? Maybe. Hmm? Yes. <laughs> I also found it a shame that the doctor didn't refer to that plate that led to the uh, workings as, as having a perception filter because it came really close to it. And this would have been the first instance of that uh, phrase if he had. But yeah, it's essentially a perception filter, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we hear about all the time these days. <laughs> um, some of the other changes or the things that are specific to the novelization. The opening is different because what Dix has done is he's swapped the opening scenes around. Okay. Yeah, because the opening of this book happens on the ship and then we go to Interminer. On screen, it's the other way around. And I think that makes a big difference because that means that we're more consciously, he's more consciously establishing the Doctor and Joe as our point of view characters rather than saying, here's this story going on over here. Oh, and this is totally unrelated. They still appear to be unrelated until the big reveal. Mm -hmm. But there's a different... It wasn't obvious how they were going to interact. They're they're going to, but it it, it was a surprise. Yeah, and it makes for a much better suspense, too. I mean, there is suspense even in a light story like this, but uh, it's interesting that he should do that. He also makes Joe a lot more mouthy. In fact, I wanted to ask you how... uh, It's been a while since we talked about Joe Grant. How are we feeling about her in this one? I feel like she holds her own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like she's 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 feeling more comfortable with the doctor, um, so she can be a little more mouthy. Oh yeah, she she definitely lets him have a piece of her mind these days, especially when it comes to not being able to control the TARDIS. Yeah, obviously. But in a way that has a good, I thought, sort of lived-in chemistry, as opposed to this is not a real, as opposed to a real fight. This is not a genuine conflict. This is bickering banter. You know, like the doctor is disappointed when he realizes now he's gonna. He thinks now when he, next he sees Joe, you know, she'll know he's lost the argument. Yes. <laughs> about yeah. where they are. And it's, I it's, it, it seems like it's sort of the peak of their working relationship chemistry, settled into in a way that suggests they've had many adventures together, and uh, and I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's teasing. Yeah, it is, and there's a and lot of it. Have completely filtered out that part that you read about um you know she's nearly hysterical at some point oh, goodness i hope he didn't actually go with the word hysterical um, a, because I, apparently I, I missed that <laughs> entirely um, and i thought that she was uh you know just kind of running around having an adventure and a good time a lot of the time there, there, there are moments of peril but found it <laughs> but, but at times she's almost bored by the lack of actual peril <laughs> Mm-hmm. Chapter six. Joe He's wiped the tears from her eyes. Joe wiped the tears from her eyes. Sorry to be such a misery, Doctor. It's just this terrible feeling that we're not getting anywhere. She's not crying at that point. Probably my brain just rejected that entirely. Yeah, as well it should, because it's not on screen. Um, also, when she's on the ship, you're right, she's she's incredibly bored by that point. But let's see, said Joe desperately. Oh, yeah, page 82. 
Joe looked at him defiantly. How do you know I'm not a passenger? None of you can remember anything of more than ten minutes back, so how do you know? Joe could feel herself getting hysterical. She stared wildly round the saloon. It's like, um, no, it's not hysteria. She's just really, really excited. (laughs) That does make more sense at this point for her to panic about something that seems crazy making like that rather than a physical peril. That is true. Panicking at the side of a monster so much as I can't make these people understand me. I can't communicate with them. They're stuck in a loop. And that actually isn't bad as something that would be panic inducing, but hysterical, get a new word. Yeah, that's true. And that, and at that point she is separated from the doctor temporarily. So I think that's a lot of it as well. Yeah. Now it's also interesting Dix uses this novel to make his own little comments on the lack of budget. Because in that first chapter, when he describes the functionaries, he describes them as made out of rough clay by a rather poor sculptor. (laughs) Yes, I wondered if that was a sick burn on the costumers. It is, because the functionaries look terrible. Oh my god, it's it's just a terrible makeup. For that matter, they don't even... They don't even have speech. When the functionary goes up and starts, you know, preaching to the masses, it's all it's all deaf, dumb gestures. It you don't even really understand what's happening until he's shot down and it's explained by the dialogue. Whereas in the book, at least, Dix can say one one went up and gave his you know sermon on the mount and got shot down by the uh, Romans over it. Yeah, yeah nothing political. Uh, <laughs> There are lots of little bits like that. I think Dix had a just a fun time writing this because you can tell he's taken definitely taken a side in the story, and it's he's on the side of the functionaries, he's not on the side of the officials. Though I swear to God, the phrase "attractive young girl" should be used in a Doctor Who drinking game because Christ Almighty! <laughs> well, and so non-specific too. Right? Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. And it also descriptions of their was it something like shabby glory or shabby golden glory or something. I thought were delightful when they get in when he got into specifics. That was Mm -hmm. all about their attire and their what did he say? CD magnificence. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's also sorry the the cat is getting rambunctious and trying to own the laptop. So it's like get away, get away, please. You didn't notice what? Oh, how similar Vorg and Sherna's banter is to Joe's and the doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, That's at, bit... so, you know, she says, you know, I should have stayed with that dance company. Yeah, third rate bunch of puffers. Um, Vorg and Sherna were examining the scope. It was still a little warm to the touch, but that was all. Really built, eh? Said Vorg admiringly. None of your modern rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the TARDIS. Yeah. The TARDIS, which also is not his original property. And also does not work terribly well, and which he has to hold together with uh, duct tape and wiring in much the same way that they use that device at the I very end of the story. I love a bracing par- uh, parallel between two sets of characters like this, and I can't believe I didn't notice it the entire time. <laughs> well, whenever a Robert Holmes script comes up, be looking for those double acts, because from here on out, you're going to see, it's going to be very, very obvious. And when we have such um, always delightful lines as Orem, search that cavity. Right, exactly. And that's one of the cleaner ones I can read on here. Yes, exactly. Dix also reorders events when uh, Andrews and decides to 
start attacking the doctor, that we don't know initially that Vorg has adjusted the scope for that to happen. Whereas on screen, we get the adjustment, then you get the fight, then you get him turning down the adjustment again. And it does improve it. And my God, he does some amazing stuff with the cliffhangers, the uh, chapter cliffhangers in the story, while one of the cliffhangers for the episode, uh, one of the episodes, is just passed over as another moment in the story. It's interesting the choices that he makes and they're all really good changes too such as the doctor being concerned about andrews after knocking him down and realizing that he's not fully there that something is influencing him because it's obviously got an effect on him too and joe is the one who's clear thinking enough to come to the rescue so yeah something that i failed grasp oh sorry go ahead dom i was just gonna say i thought it was strange how joe wasn't affected the way anybody else was but yeah well, and Probably. Joe and the Doctor are not in the loop, but yet the Doctor's still affected by the controls. And that that's something I, I failed to understand. And maybe I missed something in the story. I would have expected them to also be stuck in the, the mental loop or to not be affected at all by the controls, but they seem separate. Yeah, and I'm wondering if that's just Dick saying, yeah, the Doctor doesn't punch people out generally. So something extraordinary is going on there. But you're right, it's not terribly consistent. That being said, I think it works really well for the Doctor to be concerned about somebody that he's just knocked down. I also love the fact that in both versions of the story, it's Joe that comes up with the clever plan, even though she credits the Doctor for it, that whole thing about lateral thinking. Yes, that was all Mm -hmm. very funny. You're saying we should move sideways. Sideways. No, don't be so literal. But then moving sideways does turn out to be the solution to the problem. Well, it's very funny, too, given when the story was produced, because the phrase lateral thinking had just been coined like five years earlier. So it's very much on the minds of the public at that time. I'm trying to think what a modern equivalent would be. I guess, you know, the fact that we're talking about coronavirus back and forth now or uh, back when The Office came on and that's what she said became a big deal for several years for better or for worse yeah i know my sense of humor is better because of it (laughs) um let's see what else did he change there are a couple of other things that are just like dick's giving daily a little more depth that he takes over the machine gun i'm sorry i thought you had just invented a new holiday dick's giving no no (laughs) and i was delighted (laughs) well i would be even more delighted but of (laughs) course Well, for Dick's giving, we got this delightful our, bit of dialogue. Bloody hell, there goes our PG-13 rating. Oh, and can <laughs> yeah, you imagine... Like the, Thanksgiving, you dirty old man. Well, could you imagine what the baskets would be like for, for a holiday like that? And to say nothing of the stuffing. <laughs> oh, God. Stop uh. me now, please. <laughs> You're going to take me off. Speaking of puns and really great humor... <laughs> The generators were built by the old Eternity Perpetuity Company. Designed yes. to last forever. That's why yes. the company went bankrupt. Went out of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> went out of business. We talk about Douglas Adams having the real sense of humor on Doctor Who, but it's nothing compared to Robert Holmes at his best. It's just hilarious. The Doctor lifting someone off their feet. The third Doctor in particular, at the end of Chapter 10, and I can't remember who it is he lifts off his, their feet, but... That's pretty impressive because Pertwee had back problems, so he would not have been able to do that. 
but it tells you just how annoyed the doctor is at that point, and uh, Dix has him doing that. What else can you think of? Anything else? Uh, there's just the fact of the ship going back to its original place in time and space, or, mm-hmm. or at least the, the people on there. Um, and yeah, how, how the doctor talks about not wanting to mess with the continuity of time. Yes. But if this is supposed to be a ship that is uh, that has gone missing, and now all of a sudden he's putting them back, does that mean that something else happens to them? Um, no. Or they just... Here's the lovely, subtle thing there. The doctor says that he knows about the mysterious disappearance of the Bernice. Joe doesn't. He expresses some amount of surprise at that because he says that it was, in its time, as famous as the Mary Celeste. Of course, we know the Mary Celeste was caused by Daleks, but that's beside the point. This is where it gets interesting because the Doctor has changed history again. This is exactly what the Time Lords were worried that he would do if he were allowed free reign because that's what he's done. He remembers the Bernice disappearing. Joe doesn't because in her timeline, it didn't. Not until they arrived. I know, that doesn't make sense, does it? But it, it comes down to this, that of course Joe's history would not include the SS Bernice because it never did disappear. The Doctor, being a time traveler, has been in other eras before he arrived on Interminer where it did disappear and their presence there has caused it to change history. Yeah, which I... Th- and it's not harped on at all in the book, though there is something he says in chapter 12 in which it sounds like he's copping to having changed history. And this is his first adventure out of prison. And of course, he's mucking about with time again. Let me see if I can find it. I know it's in that last chapter because it's in my notes. I put it in there. Uh, bottom of 121. Uh, the real ship this time. The real S.S. Bernice sailing the real Indian Ocean back in the year 1926? The doctor nodded. Exactly. Joe smiled. I'm glad about that. I grew quite fond of them all in the end. Won't that mean changing history, though? The doctor waved his hand airily. Only in a few very small details. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure to for Major Daly and Claire Daly and Lieutenant Andrews and all of the lesser human beings on that ship that didn't have names at all. It's quite a big change because the Doctor has given them their lives back. But since this is a light and airy story, we're not really going to, you know, dwell on that too much. I will say there's something I want to take Terrence Dick's task on with this version, though. On screen... It's Claire that has that sudden flash of memory Mm. and almost realizes what they've just been through. But in the book, it's daily. And he's able to write it off as just another story from one of his books. Yeah, what he's been reading. Yeah, and it's not a bad change. It's just a shame that Dix takes that away from Claire because she has little enough uh, character development, but it actually is kind of a big moment in the story. Yeah, she has almost the opposite moment because there is a sort of nicely haunting sequence wherein they they start to cycle back to the beginning of of their loop, and it ends with you know Claire smiled to herself. Monsters of all the absurd ideas when she was just running from or chasing a monster seconds before. Yes, exactly. And you have to wonder also if they are in such a tight time loop. 
when do they ever eat? When do they ever sleep? Is there something about the scope that keeps them nourished or in that moment in time so that they're not aging or, you know, getting tired or sick Mm -hmm. or what have you? And But again, it's almost like the beginning of MST3K. Just repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. We're not meant to look into it that closely. But if it's... if it's the sort of technology that the Time Lords would have to shut down, maybe it does do something like that. Oh, it's yeah. interesting. The metaphor that's used for it is exactly the metaphor used for reporting humans on Westworld. The gramophone repeating the simple pattern. Oh, really? I yeah. haven't seen Westworld yet. I haven't seen the original, but that's that's the, the metaphor that they well, actually use it quite literal way in the second season of the new oh. one. Oh, I just bought the original Westworld on DVD the other day. Danny won't watch it with me, but I'm going to sit down and watch it at some point and see whether or not it actually does hold up to what I remember. The uh, first scene already doesn't, but I think that's meant to be an infomercial for Westworld. So, what else? Anything um, else? Uh, just the the monster that is attacking the ship. Um, the Plesiosaurus. Yes, the Plesiosaurus. Wondering... If that, yeah, are they trying to say that is from the same time as the ship? Is it from a different time as the ship? Yeah, just kind of its place in the story, or in the world as a whole, I guess. Yeah, because it's brought up. Also, Zorg just says, oh yeah, that's also from their planet. Yeah. Yeah. And it is His ignorance of the ecosystem. It's almost like a dropped plot line. Because it, even though it does come up in the loop again, at least once or twice it doesn't come up every time i think Mm-mm. that that attack doesn't happen every time because in later loops when joe is you know being is there being interrogated it either has already happened or is about to and it just kind of gets dropped and you're right dalton it's it's kind of odd that it's there and it's not mentioned and it doesn't seem to be, unless, of course, it came down to whoever originally populated the miniscope just saying, oh, these are all creatures from Earth. We'll just put them all in the same compartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I interpreted it. Yeah, I think that's, that's what it is. For curation. And it really does give us the most startling cover image for the book because, yeah. my God, that is just a beautiful cover. I don't know. I'm. I'm by the way, for those listening, I'm looking at the 1984 reprint of the uh, Target book that has the uh, Tom Baker logo. And it's a gorgeous cover. It really is. I don't know what the blue spine cover looks like, but I'm sure it's just as interesting. If, if they didn't put the Plesiosaurus attacking the Bernice on there, then that's just a crime. That's as much a crime as putting somebody in a miniscope. Well, maybe not as much. <laughs> I think it was a miniskirt. A miniskirt? Yeah. Or a, yeah, or a miniskirt. It's like too bad of a crime to me. <laughs> yeah. And it's, this book has the loveliest last line, doesn't it? Commissioner Plattrack didn't even notice. He was trying to work out how he managed to pick the wrong Magnum pot yet again. I just love that ending. So, anything else? I think Dick's at his most entertaining uh demonstrates a very deftly economical way of describing physicality. Some lines I have here at the end is, you know, Pletrek hurried up, gobbling with rage. And then, with elaborate casualness, Borg and Sherna began strolling across the spaceport, which in my mind is the funniest physical comedy ever. But all he said <laughs> was elaborate casualness. And um, 
and then the description of the Drashugs um, coming out of the scope and then uh, uh, popping up to full size. It's only like three paragraphs that are only, it's about six sentences total, but it's a really nice physical description of the fight and what's going on. And when, when Terrence Dixon is his best, he, he communicates physicality in a very non-fussy, non-show-offy way. That I yes. And he also put in bits that, I'm sorry, I didn't mention this. He also put in stuff that was cut from the recording. They did a model shot of uh, a little, a tiny little calic being uh, chewed on by one of the Drashigs. And they decided not to keep it in. By the way, the Drashigs were hand puppets. But they're really kind of impressive hand puppets. They look really quite good. But they decided to take that scene out because it was, you know, probably not good for the kids. There's also um, that scene where the officials greet them and almost like, uh, we white men, you Indian, how? You know, that, that, those couple lines are cut from the transmitted version. But yeah, the physicality, you're absolutely right, Allison. Dix is marvelous when it comes to describing stuff, especially when he's expanding on what we don't get on screen. I forgot to talk about this. The miniscope is the blandest looking thing on screen. <laughs> you would not know that from his description. Because it sounds like it's garish and gaudy and it has separate viewing ports. Oh, it sounds like a whirly gig box. Yeah, yeah, just a bit. And it has separate viewing ports for everybody when on screen there's only one central screen because they need to do the CSO effect on it. Yeah. Yeah. Give Dix an inch and he'll take a yard, which is a good thing if we're talking about books. Yeah. Yeah. So, on to Goodreads. I think so. Okay, on the Goodreads. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with your own rating. And by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a comment or review in our new Goodreads group. It's not new anymore. By the deadline, so that we have a chance to see it before um, discussing the book ourselves, you might just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a fairly high 3.61. Mel gives it five stars and says, I bought this book for a pound, but ended up having Katie Manning sign it this weekend anyway. She was very cute and recognized it instantly, saying, Ah, that's the one where Joe learns to think with the other side of her brain. (laughs) It was quite a fun little story, one I've not yet watched, and so it was interesting to picture the aliens and their device with not much to go on. There were some brilliant Joe moments in this one. One where they were trapped, and she suggested to the doctor he used a sonic screwdriver to get out of there. Oh, that's right. And he explained it wouldn't work, so she pulled out a set of lockpicks and opened the door with them, remarking, I've learned, Doctor, that when we're together sooner or later, we're going to get locked up. Yes. (laughs) The plot was a little simplistic and unbelievable, but the characters and the villains were quite great. It was a fun adventure, one I'm looking forward to watching. Uh, The user named The Other John gives it only two stars, saying, now this, this is perfect waiting room material. I've been having to bide the time while donating platelets. Bringing a book along is a classic way to spend an hour or two, but I can't bring one that's too interesting because I also have to pay attention to the machinery that is alternately sucking and returning my blood. (laughs) I 
I also don't want to bring one that's too challenging, because the aforementioned machinery would also distract me from giving attention to what I'm reading. This book, however, is neither. Doctor Who and the Carnival of Monsters is a novelization of a 1973 serial the BBC series. The characters are two-dimensional, and the story is short and light, as one might expect from a TV episode. I found it entertaining enough, as I could easily visualize, remember actually, the actors and their performances. It was also interesting to read through the story and recognize story devices that were acquired by a low-budget show that had to be filmed in the confines of the studio. All in all, it suited my needs perfectly. Maybe I should start amassing a collection of the rest of the series. Yeah, maybe you should if you're donating platelets a lot. It's kind of a first rating for something that fit his needs so perfectly. I guess so. And finally, Rashid simply says, This is the best Doctor Who story I've read so far. Five stars. question is how many has Rashid read? I don't know. This is their first. This is probably their first. (laughs) So let's find out your thoughts on these things. Uh, Dalton, what rating would you give this and why? Um, I would probably go with a solid four on this one. Um, it, it was interesting enough to, to keep me, uh, interested. Uh, okay. It was interesting enough, uh, that, you know, I wasn't bored, uh, even though there were some things that I felt like I wanted it to talk about a little more, some of the more, uh, political aspects of it that I wish they would have wrapped back around. Although after talking to you guys, I do, I do see them there. They just weren't as overt. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was a f- fun read, um, kind of a bit of a, a monster story, um, mixed with a a bit of a mystery uh, with the with the doctor and Joe not knowing they were initially in the machine. So yeah, um, Terrence Sticks does a really good job with the descriptions. Uh, you get a lot of humor in here, which is really fun. Um, something that I always enjoy seeing the characters banter. Um, so yeah, I would say a good four stars. Okay, Allison. Uh, hold on a moment. I'm trying to not sneeze. <laughs> That's all right. We'll cut it out. He said, knowing that he'd keep every single second of it. I'm going to go with the three. I enjoyed it uh, for what it was. Uh, It had some darker background elements, but sort of a sprightly forward story. It was a very good, entertaining placeholder story. Nothing Mm -hmm. changes the status quo. There are no further developments that will shake the universe. But there are actually fewer stories like that than I expected. They're just sort of toddling along, having an adventure, getting in a scrape. Stakes are not very high for them, and, it, and it's, it's a fun beach book. Go back to my <laughs> my old standby. <laughs> Dalton, do you want to say it was a quick read? It was a fun read? <laughs> mm, I'll leave it to Allison this time. <laughs> <laughs> it was 64 Excellent. degrees this weekend. I did, in fact, go to the beach. Yes, mm. so you did do it as a beach book. <laughs> I read it in bed with the window open, but yeah. And I read it on the commute to and from work with people sneezing and coughing around me, which is probably why I got sick. But that's fine, because it didn't take away from my enjoyment of this book at all. I give this a 4.5 out of 5. Because uh, I know that we, at times on the show, have said not too kind things about Dix's style when he's not all that invested in the story. Here, he's again very much invested in the story, which is interesting given how late this book was written. I mean, this is 1978 that he's uh, novelizing this. 
77, sorry, 77. So the Tom Baker era is well on its way. And he's doing novelizations of those stories as well. But Ian Martyr is also taking up some of the slack on them, so he's able to go back and revisit some of these. And you can tell that he enjoyed this one. And that enjoyment comes through on the page. Now, I do have to take points off for the fact that even though he makes Joe as much a badass as she is on screen, he has to give with one hand and take with the other. He uh, makes her nearly hysterical. He makes her cry at one point. And he gives that moment of realization that Claire has at the very end of the story back to Major Daly. That being said, it really is just one of his best novelizations, and I'm, I was really quite happy to read it. This is probably the best book to come back from break with, isn't it? Because it's light, and it's airy, and it's a fast read, it's a fun read, and you can read it on the beach. Oh my mm-hmm. god, you've both infected me. Yes! Well, and there, but then there are these topical lines relevant to our lives now where someone, you know, recoils and said, you mean physical contact? And they're asking <laughs> documents. Yes. Oh, thank you. Um, Welcome to the West Coast to get away from physical Yes, exactly, as we're all telecommuting to work, as indeed we're doing with this episode, come to think of it. So listeners, get used to this, because this might be the new normal. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, well, let's hope not. So, thank you guys, and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time we'll be discussing a Malcolm Hulk adaptation of his own story, Frontier in Space, retitled, strangely enough, The Space War. Oh my god, in my notes I have it misspelled as Frontier, and it didn't catch it. Well, that's weird. In the meantime... I know! I don't know what's wrong with me. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Because, (laughs) you know, I just might. If it's coming to my personal email, I just might, or I might think it's spam. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash y32b8f55 along with many, many others, including what will probably be our theme when we get to the Tom Baker years. Ooh. And that's not that's coming up pretty quickly. We've got another six months of Pertwee, I believe. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for coming back after this long break. And enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. At that point. And you don't have dicks as your... Look. Sorry. <laughs> Let me start that again. Nothing serious, nothing political.